right, thank you guys so much for coming. Uh, open up your Bibles to 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3, and then we're going to look at just a, a little portion uh, further down in verse 10. We're going to look at that more in depth in the weeks to come, but we're going to just kind of take a little glimpse at verse 10. My kids always complain that I rush into the passage too quickly when they're still flipping and they're looking for the passage, so I'll give a little bit of time. Hurry up. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Second <laughs> Peter 2, 1 through 3. Amen. This is God's word. But false prophets, <clears throat> sorry, my voice, <laughs> false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And then jump to verse 10, just a portion of it. Those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Let's pray. Father God, we give you all the glory, and Lord God, truly, thank you for this day. Thank you for the gentle rain this morning. Father, may you also, Lord, rain down your blessing at this time. Lord, you are already with us, but Lord God, please speak to us. Please open our hearts and our eyes. Father, today, please teach us as well. Show us, Father God, more in depth of what is going on in our world around us and how we can accurately interact with that and understand that so that we may share the gospel we may speak your truth into that. So Lord God, I pray and ask that you would be with us, Father God. We thank you so much for everyone here. Be with everyone online. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, for the last few weeks, we've been looking at Peter's introduction to the false teachers and teachings that had come into the churches that he was in charge of, that he oversaw. So that introduction is in the first three verses of chapter two. And this is the main reason why he wrote his second letter, Second Peter, uh, the reason is because he wanted to warn the believers about these false teachers and false teachings that had come into the church, who will come into the churches. So he said, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. So that's very interesting. A lot of people have pointed this out, but even though these teachers are already in the church, Peter emphasizes future tense. They will come, church. They're going to come. They're going to come. And why is that? Why did Peter talk about this in the future when they were already there? Well, one explanation is he might have been quoting from Christian prophecies earlier about false teachers who were going to come, and he just kind of took that and just put it right into his letter. He kept the future tense. They're going to come, the prophecy said. So Peter said they're going to come. So that's one explanation, that's a possibility. I like to think that the Holy Spirit also inspired Peter to put the warnings in the future tense. Why? So that his warnings are always gonna be immediate and relevant to anybody who's gonna read this. In any generation, it's gonna sound like it's for us. They will come, church, they will come believers. So in other words, I believe God had Peter put it in the future tense because God wants us to read Peter's warnings as immediately relevant to us. Again, Peter said, there will be false teachers among you. It's almost as if he's speaking to us. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. And so God wanted all of this to be immediate, relevant to us, and yes, it is. Because today, as you look around, there are false teachers and teachings everywhere. In fact, just this past weekend, I was talking to one of the leaders in our church, and we were talking about uh, some of the false teachings floating around and, and navigating through that in our church. But they are everywhere, and they are also coming into the church. And so for the last few weeks, we've been looking at one particular false teaching. If you've been here, you know we've been talking about neo-paganism and the occult, which has exploded in recent times. I'm not going to go into all that again, but you can go back, listen to it. It's on our website. But it is everywhere. 
seeping into the church. And today, I want to look at a different false teaching, another massive, massive teaching that is false, and it is everywhere, including in the church. I think two weeks ago, I called it kind of like the second head of a two-headed dragon. There might be more heads to this dragon, different message for a different time, but I really believe they're kind of working together. And this other false teaching that I'm talking about is cultural Marxism. Cultural Marxism. When's the last time you came to church and heard that? <laughs> but cultural Marxism. And this ideology, this teaching has all the same qualities as the other false teachings that Peter warned against already. So for example, it is a destructive heresy. Peter said that about his false teachings in his day. But this is the same. Destructive heresy. It denies Christ. It is sensual. In other words, it's carnal. It appeals to the carnal person. And many will follow it. Many are following it. But cultural Marxism has another quality that Peter mentions in verse 10. This is why I kind of dipped into verse 10. But there's another quality it has that Peter mentions. It is taught by teachers who despise authority. And I think that one's really important. It is taught by teachers who despise authority. Now, from the immediate context of 2 Peter, we know whose authority they are despising, these false teachers. It is Christ's authority. They've rejected Jesus and his lordship, his authority. And I want you to listen to what a commentator said about these false teachers that Peter was dealing with. But li listen to what this commentator said. Very interesting. By refusing to submit to Christ, they reveal their insubordination and rebelliousness in general. And then listen. These people will not submit to anyone, why? Being supremely confident of their intellectual ability. I thought that was really interesting. But kind of digging into the past, the historical context of 2 Peter, this commentator said, you know what? These false teachers were rebellious. They rejected Jesus' authority, Jesus' teachings. Why? Because they're so smart. Okay, they knew better. They had supreme confidence in their intellectual ability. And when I read that, I said, that is almost a perfect description of cultural Marxism. That's almost exact. Because cultural Marxism is a false teaching that rejects the authority of Christ. It clearly does. And historically, it came from the intellectuals. It came from the universities. So what happens in the universities really matter. Get beyond your you know, ping pong nights at the dorms, you know, all the drinking parties that happen. I mean, beyond that, what gets taught in the colleges and universities really matter. But this is where all this stuff came from. The intellectuals. These are people who are supremely confident of their intellectual ability. They knew better. And their ideas that they began to push out, push forward, are like clouds floating high up in the sky. And eventually these clouds, right, these ideas, they became so big and so heavy that they started to rain down consequences down here in the real world. Okay, that's how ideas work. In the beginning, ideas don't feel like anything, right? It's like, what is that? That's just stupid, right? You're talking about stuff. They're just ideas. And yet, over time, some ideas, they grab hold. They get so big. They get so heavy, like rain clouds. It begins to pour down consequences on everybody and affects our lives here. So today, we're going to look at the different ideas that make up cultural Marxism and I know, right, even as I was preparing this message, I know that this could potentially be frustrating for some people, talking about ideas, especially strange ideas we're not familiar with. It can be very frustrating, right? It could be kind of out there, irrelevant. But I want to encourage all of you to stay engaged. And the reason is because when you think about the gospel, the gospel is also a set of ideas, right? It's a message, a true set of ideas, and those ideas have what? It's changed us. It's transformed our daily lives. Well, these false ideas that make up cultural Marxism, they're also changing people's lives. They're impacting people's lives right here, right now. Even people in the church. So again, ideas are like clouds. Once they get big enough and heavy enough, they begin to rain down consequences on everyone in the real world. So what are some of the consequences of cultural Marxism. Okay, what am I talking about? Well, just to kind of start off, let me give you some examples in the real world so we kind of have an idea of what we're talking about here. 
Okay, cultural Marxism, what am I talking about? What are these consequences? Well, I pulled these in order, in the order that I actually saw them in the news. I read a lot of news and I literally actually remember all of these things happening. Okay, bunch of examples. October 2020, protesters went into the streets in Portland on their indigenous day of rage. It was this movement that they organized and they started tearing down statues, including a statue of Abraham Lincoln. They, stored, they tore down a statue of Abraham Lincoln. And I wanna remind you, Abraham Lincoln was the president who signed the Emancipation Proclamation ending slavery in the US. But they tore that down. December 2020, a very well-known megachurch right here in Southern California decided to hold a blacks-only worship service. And many people who saw that said, it looks like the church is bringing back segregation. March 2021, six Dr. Seuss books were removed. How many of you guys read Dr. Seuss growing up? They're banned. They got canceled, or at least some of them. Six Dr. Seuss books were, remo were removed from the public school libraries because they portray people in, quote unquote, hurtful and wrong ways. At the same time this was happening, LGBTQ children's books with pornographic images were being made readily available in public schools throughout the nation. May 2021, the mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of one of the biggest cities in the country, told the media that she would be hiring new journalists for her press corps, but only if they're not white. She's only taking non-white candidates. August 2021, Dave Chappelle made some comments about race and transgenderism in his Netflix comedy show. Afterwards, some of you guys might have seen that, Please don't watch that, a lot of profanity. But NPR afterwards accused Dave Chappelle of using white privilege. Dave Chappelle is a black man, very interesting. Earlier this year, a high school near where I live had a fight break out in the girls' bathroom. Why? Because the school allowed the bio, a biological male who identified as a female to go into the girls' bathroom and the girls were freaking out, they said some things, a big fight broke out, physical fight. That was right by where I live. April this year, so now we're in 2023, April this year, a protest broke out at the University of Pittsburgh because of a speaker event. The speaker was a political conservative commentator and the protest that happened with the students got so out of hand, the university police issued a public safety emergency. A public safety emergency. And then after the event, people were asking if free speech was being threatened. Are we even able to have free speech in our country? Last month, only a month ago, a transgendered weightlifter who is biologically male broke all records in a Canadian women's weightlifting competition. The winner lifted a combined 400 more pounds than the runner-up who was biologically female. Good job, right? And then finally, this fall, many colleges across the country no longer require standardized tests like the SAT and ACT for admission. Why? Because they say these tests are historically racist, classist, and sexist. So what is going on? Okay, what is all of this? Well, for some of you guys, on the surface, you might be thinking, well, these are just hot-button political issues, right? Why are you talking about politics and church? But politics is not what we're focused on today. We're not talking about politics. I'm not focusing on politics in this message. Okay? I'm not talking about who you should vote for, who you shouldn't vote for. That is up to you, between you and God. But all of these examples are the consequences of ideas. Like I said, these are the rain clouds that got so big and heavy, now they're pouring down consequences on everyone. These are the consequences of ideas in the real world. And so what I wanna talk about today are ideas. This is what Peter was referring to when he was talking about these false teachers spreading destructive heresies, and we're gonna get into that later in the letter of 2 Peter. He goes into all these ideas that they were spreading, like Christ isn't gonna return, and where is he, and, and all these thoughts that they had, teachings. Well, these are the ideas that we're facing today. They have consequences. And ideas that have, been, that have become known as cultural Marxism Okay, these are the consequences we just looked at. These are the ideas of cultural Marxism. Another popular term for it might be wokeism. You guys might have heard that maybe more, wokeism. And these ideas are not only producing some strange consequences in the real world, but they actually are a worldview. They form a worldview. So cultural Marxism is a worldview. 
Okay, what's a worldview? A worldview is just a bunch of ideas and it's trying to make sense of reality. It's trying to answer some of the biggest questions that we face, like who are human beings? Why are we here? What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with humanity? How can we make right what is wrong? Okay, this is what a worldview tries to answer. And so, for most people today, a lot of people, growing numbers of people, even in the church, the worldview that they have received is this one. This set of ideas called cultural Marxism or wokeism or whatever you want to call it, this is the set of ideas or the worldview they've accepted. And brothers and sisters, if we're going to be effective witnesses, we need to understand this worldview. There's no way around it. We need to kind of get a handle around it. And we need to understand how the true worldview of the gospel answers the deepest questions of this false worldview. I'll say that again. We need to first understand what this worldview is, if we're going to be a witness, and then we need to understand how the gospel answers the deepest questions of this false worldview. So before we jump into looking at cultural Marxism, I want to encourage you guys with two things, just quick encouragement. But first, as we begin to look at this, and we're going to have to spend a, a couple weeks on this, but approach this whole topic as a missionary. Okay, I encourage you to think about all this as a missionary, trying to understand the, a foreign culture that you're being sent to. Okay, uh, try to picture it as a missionary so that you can effectively reach people in this culture. You know, like 20, I don't know, it was a while ago, 15, 20 years ago when I was in seminary, I remember Don Richardson. Some of you guys know, might know him, but he was the famous missionary who wrote Peace Child, great book. But he actually came and spoke in one of my seminary classes, very inspiring. But he was a missionary who, was, who took his wife and seven-month-old baby and they went to the Sawi tribe in Western New Guinea. And the Sawi tribe, they were cannibals and headhunters. So imagine this young missionary taking his young wife and a seven-month-old baby and they went to these cannibals and headhunters in Indonesia called the Sawi. But it was very inspiring because he said that he spent years learning the culture of the Shawi. Why? The Sawi, why? In order to share the gospel with them. So in the same way, we live in a culture that is increasingly foreign to Christianity, right? And even though our sacrifice is nothing like Richardson, I think we can learn from Richardson. I think we can give some effort to understand the culture around us. Okay, I mean, we live here anyway, don't we? Why? So that we can reach people in it. Okay, people are really, really trapped in this worldview. So that's my first encouragement. Okay, see it as a missionary. Okay, my second encouragement is, as we look at cultural Marxism, I want you to think about the gospel. Okay, think about the gospel. We might not talk about the gospel directly the whole time, but think about it as we talk about cultural Marxism. Why? Because the gospel actually has the true answers to the deepest questions in cultural Marxism. And as we look at this dark set of ideas, the gospel really shines brighter. Okay, you're going to have a new understanding, appreciation of the gospel. You know, years ago, another story, but I remember when I was picking out an engagement ring for my wife, uh, I, want, I went to this kind of, um, I think it was a legal jeweler. My friend recommended it in L.A., I had to go through some alleys. Anyway, <laughs> I think it was legal. It was legit. <laughs> but I don't know why I shared that. <laughs> anyway, um, I went to this, yeah, jeweler in the middle of downtown LA. And when I got there, he rolled out, he took out all these diamond rings, right? Small ones. <laughs> and he rolled out this black velvet cloth. And you guys know, but he laid the rings on the black velvet cloth. Now, when the rings were in his hands, I mean, they were shiny, they looked pretty, but when he put them on the cloth, they were brilliant, okay, they really shined. The beauty of the rings, the diamonds really shined. And so that's the way I see these false teachings like neo-paganism and cultural Marxism, but they're kind of like the black velvet that you roll out and then when you put the gospel up against it, the gospel shines brighter. You appreciate the gospel even more. And so there's value to seeing what is not the gospel and talking about the things that are false. And then comparing it to the gospel, there's value to that because you have a deeper appreciation of the gospel. You can understand it in new ways. And you can see how the gospel answers the deepest questions that these false teachings are trying to answer. 
So those are my two encouragements. See it as a missionary and as we talk about this false teaching for the next couple weeks, think about the gospel. And I'll, try, and I'll do my best to try to highlight the gospel at certain points. But think about the gospel. So today, I want to begin by answering some questions on cultural Marxism. Actually, we're only, we're only going to get to one of them. <laughs> okay, there's just so much, right? But we're going to answer, how did we get here? In other words, how did our culture become so infected with this set of ideas called cultural Marxism or wokeism? Okay, how did we get here? Number two, what is cultural Marxism? Number three, how is cultural Marxism in the church? And then finally, how should we respond to it? especially with the gospel. And again, we're only going to get through the first one, unfortunately, today. So first, how did we get here? Okay, how did all these strange ideas that make up cultural Marxism end up saturating our culture today? Okay, why are we dealing with all these crazy consequences and it doesn't seem to be letting up? I mean, it might kind of shift and morph and change in expression, but it seems to be here to stay. Okay, how did it happen? Well, I'm going to be drawing from different experts on this topic, obviously. I mean, this isn't my area of study or anything. But I read a couple books on this, a few different books. But James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose wrote a book on this topic called Cynical Theory. So I'm drawing it, stuff from, from that book. There's also a philosopher that was very helpful. His name is Stephen Hicks. He teaches in a university. I think it's the University of Rochester or somewhere over there. But he's written and spoken a lot on this topic. But from what these different experts have said about this ideology, right, this set of ideas, cultural Marxism today, and by the way, not everyone uses that term. Even the people who wrote these things and talk about these things, they don't use that term all the time. I'm just using it because I think it has a very clear connection to Marx. We'll talk about that. But cultural Marxism today is really the product. Okay, all, the, all this craziness today that we're seeing is really the product of three streams of thought. I kind of see them as rivers. Okay, three rivers kind of coming together, converging. Okay, these three rivers, and, and don't get turned off or intimidated by these terms. Okay, we'll, we'll talk about these terms. But these three rivers are critical theory, postmodernism, and social justice. But these are like three rivers that are flowing down a mountain. Imagine a small river. In the beginning, it just kind of trickles like a little creek. And then it keeps coming down, it gets bigger and bigger, and then it kind of joins with other rivers until finally it's this muddy, loud river with tons of people interacting with it and it's changing life as we know it, right? That, that's kind of the picture I see. But these are three rivers that have produced what we see today, cultural Marxism. And people who have studied this for a living, they say that there's a pretty direct connection. Okay, this isn't just some kind of like thing that we're trying to make up or force, but there is a pretty direct connection from critical theory, postmodernism, social justice to all the craziness today. And again, please hear all this as missionaries. Okay, if you don't care about this, then I'm going to just say it right now. You don't care about reaching people in our culture. It's like, oh, whatever. But I want to encourage you. See it as a missionary. So all of these streams, they have connected at different points and they all kind of go all the way back to Marxism ultimately. Now, they're not the same thing as classical Marxism. We'll get into what that is. Okay, this is what Karl Marx and his buddy Friedrich Engel wrote and taught about. They're not the same thing as classical Marxism, but they all have a connection to it. So let me briefly give an outline of Marxism and then each of these three streams, okay? They're gonna be really, really sketchy. It's gonna be inadequate, but hopefully it'll be enough to kind of give us an idea, okay? So if you know more about it, then yeah, let's talk about it and let's flesh it out together, but this is just gonna be a bare bones sketch. So first, Marxism. Ultimately, this is where it flows down from, Marxism. And Marxism, okay, this is a set of ideas again, right? These are all ideas, kind of floating like clouds up there. It comes from the writings and teachings of Karl Marx. That's why it's called Marxism. Now, I'm going to give some background on this. This is the only person I'm going to give background on because he's such an important figure. But he was born in 1818, died in 1883. So he lived his whole life in the 1800s. He was born in Germany in a very Catholic city, and he also lived part of his life in England. Okay, that's kind of where he lived. He was also a Jew, 
who came from a long line of rabbis. So even though he was in Germany, he was actually Jewish, came from a long line of rabbis. Although his father, early, early in his life, he converted to Lutheranism. Okay, Lutheranism, based on the teachings of you know, Martin Luther. This is a branch of Christianity. So his dad became a Christian. Although a lot of historians say he probably converted out of convenience because being a Christian gave him more credibility in society, right? So it wasn't like a legit conversion, perhaps, but he became a Christian, a Lutheran. Well, regardless, growing up, Karl Marx considered himself a Christian. He went to college, and then through the influence of one of his atheist professors, he became an atheist. So this is like the, the old story we hear all the time, right? You grow up in a Christian home, you're going to church, you're singing in the choir, and then boom, you go to college, I'm an atheist now, right? Met this fantastic professor who led me away from God. So this is Karl Marx. He became an atheist. Now, I can't really get into this much, but over time in his life, after he became an atheist, Karl Marx, over time, became obsessed with Satan and the demonic. It's very interesting. Have you guys ever seen that book, Where's Waldo? You know, I remember like when I was kind of younger, I, I would read those books. Well, Satan is kind of like Waldo. <laughs> the more I study history, the more I kind of, you know, read about people and biographies, like inevitably, whenever you're reading about some figures that, gosh, why did they teach that? Or what's going on with their lives? It's so dark. Inevitably, Satan pops up. <laughs> that happens with Muhammad. That happens with, you know, Carl Jung, you know, Karl Marx, you know, a bunch of different people, right? But Satan seems to always pop up. Well, here's Satan and Karl Marx's life. There's actually different books that have been written on this recently. The most recent book is called The Devil and Karl Marx. It's a fascinating book written by a historian at Grove City College. I encourage you to buy it. I mean, it's just fascinating. It's a very thick book full of firsthand accounts of Marx's fascination with the devil. Even the people closest to him acknowledge that. So, for example, his closest buddy, Engels, who co-wrote the Communist Manifesto with him, probably knew him best. He, this is what Engels said about Marx. He said, when I first met him, he seemed like a monster of 10,000 devils. How many of you guys have said that about a good friend of yours, your best friend? Man, he was a monster of 10,000 devils. Even his own dad, the dad who converted to Christianity, said, Marx, my son, was governed by a demon. That, that's, a, that's a pretty big put down by your dad. Karl Marx himself said, thus heaven I forfeited. I know it full well. My soul, once true to God, is now chosen for hell. He was a poet. He loved writing poetry, and he wrote actually poems, and oftentimes he wrote about things like this, dark themes about the devil and Satan and going to hell. So very dark stuff. Anyway, I'm not sharing this stuff to dismiss Karl Marx or to put him down, but I just want to give you an idea of who he is, okay, his background. In fact, it's just really interesting that now, right now, we're in a time where a growing number of young people really like Marx. If you look up polls of young people in Marxism, I mean, a growing number of people like him. It's very common to go into professors' offices around colleges and you would see a bust of Marx. You know, a bust would be like a statue head, right, of Marx. Very popular. When's the last time somebody tore down a statue of Marx? And I won't go into a you know, other things, but Marx was also a very, like, you know, outspoken racist. I mean, I mean, all kinds of things, right? But this is Marx. Well, Marx had other influences, of course, in his life other than Satan, especially the writings of a German philosopher named Hegel. We can't get into that, but he really loved this other German philosopher named Hegel. And based on the teachings of Hegel, Marx eventually came up with his own theory which people now know as Marxism, which is what communism is based on. Okay, this is where it's coming. He published his thoughts, his ideas in the Communist Manifesto, very, very famous little book. It's only about 50 some pages. You can find it for free, download it for free as a PDF. It's just everywhere, Communist Manifesto. So what is his teaching, right? Well, what does Marx believe? In a nutshell, Marxism saw all of society as a constant struggle between two classes of people. You might have heard this. The haves and the have-nots. The oppressor and the oppressed. So Marx, when he looked at all of society and looked out at the whole world, in fact, he just grew people into certain identities. He didn't see them as individuals, but just large groups 
with certain identities, the haves and the have-nots, the oppressor and the oppressed. And the oppressors are the business owners, the merchants, the wealthy ruling class. He called them the bourgeoisie. The oppressed are the poor working class. He called them the proletariat. And the proletariats are not the factory owners. That's the bourgeoisie. The proletariat are the factory workers, right? These are the people in the factories are slaving away, doing all the work, being paid nothing, right? And Marx believed that capitalism like the free market economy we live in today, okay, America is based on capitalism, is so immoral, it is so unjust, that it's inevitable, right? This is gonna happen. The poor, oppressed working class, the proletariat, are gonna rise up, even violently, sometimes he said violence is necessary, and they're gonna revolt against the rich, ruling class, the bourgeoisie, the oppressor class, and they're gonna tear them down, right? Marx said this is inevitable. This must happen, why? Because this free market capitalism is totally immoral. And then the working class is gonna establish a temporary dictatorship where they're gonna take control of the means of production, in other words, things like factories, farmlands, right? Things that produce all this stuff. They're gonna take control of all of that. They're gonna get rid of all private property it actually literally says that in the Communist Manifesto. Okay, if, you, if you like Marxism, then you need to give up all your goods. <laughs> okay? Turn in your car, turn in your clothes, turn in all your, you know, your tech. But all private property must be abolished. He said even the family must be abolished. Okay, people are surprised when they hear that, but that's right there in the Communist Manifesto. Okay, page 50 of the free PDF you can get. I didn't want to pay money for it. I just downloaded the free version, but on the PDF, page 30, did I say 50? Page 30 is right there. You must abolish the family. Okay, why? Because all these things like private property and family is what the bourgeoisie, the ruling class, is using to stay in power. Okay, this is what Marx said. This is what they're using to stay in power. So all of it needs to be abolished. So anyway, once the ruling class are gone, okay, the working class revolted, right? They rose up, they tore them down, got rid of them, and all their means of power, like private property, like family, even religion. He talks a lot about abolishing religion. Religion, all of that is gone. The utopia will come. Okay, the perfect society will come. Everyone's going to be equal. We're all going to have justice. We're all going to be living in paradise. So, this is Mark's vision. This is his teaching. And notice how different that is from the gospel message. Think about how the gospel presents what society is based on. Think about how relationships work according to the gospel, how they should work, right? How the perfect society is gonna come. It's totally different. So that's a very brief, inadequate outline of Marxism, but it sees all of society in conflict. Everything boils down to the wealthy ruling class, the oppressors, and the poor working class, the oppressed, and they're in conflict, right? So already you can kind of see where this is headed. Thousands of, you know, maybe, no, I'm sorry, not thousands, a hundred years later, you can see where this is headed. Marx also had this very confident vision, right, that this will happen. Okay, we, we will see this transformation of society. So it was very activist, right? Things must change. You must cause this change to happen. And then Marx also believed this was very moral, right? This is our moral duty. The oppressed must rise up and I'm sorry, the, yeah, the oppressed must rise up and tear down the oppressors. It's the only way we're gonna be free and have a perfect society. So now, is that clear? Okay, so now, fast forward to the early 1900s and we're gonna move to uh, where this is gonna now take a different shift. And we're gonna go a lot quicker now. But Marxism has now spread to the Soviet Russia, right? Soviet Russia has now taken this in Okay, you might have heard that, the Bolshevik Revolution. This is spreading, it's bloody, it's violent. People are revolting. And it looked like a success from the outside. So Marxists elsewhere, like in Germany, London, elsewhere, wanted the same revolution to happen. Okay, just a little bit of history. But it's not happening. Okay, why isn't it happening? Marx said, this is inevitable, right? This will happen. It should happen. So why isn't it happening? Well, especially in Germany. Where Marx is from, why isn't it happening? So a group of smart people, these thinkers, 
in Frankfurt, Germany. They're called the Frankfurt School. Okay, these guys were Marxists. They were committed, right, to Marxism. They came up with an answer. They came up with an answer of why isn't this happening in Germany? Okay, what's going on? And their answer can be summarized by critical theory. Okay, this is critical theory. Okay, again, just a bunch of ideas. That's all it is. I know it sounds kind of intimidating, like foreign. It's just a bunch of ideas. So in short, critical theory from the Frankfurt School took Marxism, right, the original Marxism, and then they adapted it, right? They changed it. And they took a more psychological approach to Marxism. And they said, here's why we think it's not happening here in Germany. Why, why aren't people rising up, right? The working class, why aren't they rising up? And here's why. It's because the culture and the ideology of the people controlling the culture is suppressing everybody. Okay? So you kind of see where this is headed again, 100 years later. So it's not so much that they don't want to change, it's just things are set up in a certain way where it's just kind of pressing the certain kind of view, right, this ideology, and it's keeping people down, it's suppressing them. And so they turned Marx's focus on just the economy, and then they turned it onto the culture, the whole culture. And these guys in the Frankfurt School, they said, we need to figure out all the oppressor-oppressed dynamics within culture, like education, okay? Let's look at education in the schools. What's going on there? There's something happening. People are being oppressed. There's oppressors, and it's keeping people down, but it's happening in this indirect way through ideology. What's happening in the schools? The courtrooms, the business, the arts, the media, gender relationships. They're looking at everything, right? And why are they so critically looking at all of these things? so that people can be liberated, right? It's all about that. It's all about getting rid of oppression. Let's be free. Utopia. Okay, we want to make a perfect society. And that entire field of study trying to do that, that's critical theory. Okay, that's critical theory. Now, some of you guys might have heard of critical race theory. That's different. That, that's related, but that's way in the future, like in the 80s, 1980s, starting the law schools. That's something different. This is like the original critical theory. Okay, there's a lot more we can say about that, but we're going to move on. So that's the first stream, right? Okay, Marx is kind of like the fountainhead, and now here's critical theory. Okay, it's a response to why all these revolts, Marxist revolts aren't happening. So now here's the second stream, postmodernism. Okay, postmodernism. Again, please hear all this as a missionary. Let's, let's try to understand this. Postmodernism is a huge philosophical movement that impacted everything, everything from the arts, education, to law. Many people say you can't even define what it is. Okay, so I'm not gonna even try. But here's what we should know about it. Postmodernism rose up around the mid-1900s because people were disillusioned. They're jaded. Okay, they're, they're discouraged. Why? Because now, in the mid-1900s, two massive world wars happened, right? World War I, World War II, millions were dead. Okay, things are just not turning out right. They stopped believing. So based on all that, they stopped believing in all the promises of the stuff before. Okay, things like modernism, communism. They stopped believing all the promises of that. Again, because world wars happened. Now, even though a lot of these postmodern philosophers were Marxist to varying degrees, they even got discouraged by Marxism. They're kind of jaded by that too. So they're kind of disillusioned, jaded by both of these things. So they were first jaded by modernism, okay? Among other things, modernism says that you can know the truth, right? There's something true out there, you can know that, and you can use your human reason to know that truth and to move humanity forward, right? Like the sciences, you use human reason to do science and it'll move things forward. And the postmodernists said, ah, they gave up on that. They got jaded. Well, look at what science and human reason produce. It's world wars. So they were pessimistic when it came to modernism. They were also pessimistic when it came to Marxism. Why? Because revolution must happen, right? It will happen. And it's gonna bring justice, oppression is gonna be cast off, and people are gonna be set free, utopia is gonna come. None of that happened. The best version that they could see, the Soviet Russia, Soviet Union, 
it ended in a bloody, bloody mess. So Marxism isn't what they thought. It didn't deliver the promises. Instead, here's what Marxism and communism brought. Okay, people need to be clear on this, okay? People who love Marxism today. This is what it brought. USSR, Soviet Russia, 20 million dead. China, 65 million people dead. Vietnam, 1 million dead. North Korea, 2 million dead. Cambodia, 2 million dead. Eastern Europe, 1 million dead. Latin America, 150,000 dead. Africa, 1.7 million dead. Afghanistan, 1.5 million dead. The international communist movement and communist party is not in power. About 10,000 people dead. So millions and millions and millions of people died because of this set of ideas. And I got those numbers from the devil and Karl Marx. So then what did the postmodern philosophers in the mid-1900s begin to do? So they're jaded, right? Modernism, right? Human reason, science, all this. We just got world wars. Marxism, utopia is supposed to happen. People are going to re revolt and rise up and change things. Millions dead. So what did these postmodern philosophers decide to do? Well, they came up with their own new ideas. And we can't go very in-depth. I'll just keep it very, very simple, brief. But there were two main ideas that became very important to them. And you see it everywhere today, everywhere. And the book Cynical Theories does a good job of laying this out. I'm, I'm getting it from that book, mostly. Okay, objective truth is unknowable. You can't know objective truth. Okay, modern people, the modernists said, you can know truth, right? We can use human reason, science. We're going to make it a better world. Forget all that. Unknowable. Objective truth is unknowable. Everything we know and say is true is culturally conditioned. That's what they began to teach. In other words, what that means is everything we say we know and that we say is true is actually only true subjectively. It's only true to me. In my own personal experience, my own personal place in society, it's just true to me. And objective truth, I mean, there is a real world out there, but you can't really know that. You can't really know true things about that world out there. You know, one of the best examples I heard of this is accents. Okay, how many of you guys have an accent? We all have accents. <laughs> but accents. Okay, let me ask you, which accent is objectively the right accent to have? Okay, which accent is the right accent? Well, how do you answer that? Well, the answer is, well, it depends on where you live, right? If you live in the South, in the U.S., having a Southern accent, I guess, is the right accent, I guess. <laughs> if you live in the U.K., having a British accent, I guess, is the right accent. So how do you answer that question? Well, every accent is the right accent if you move, right, if, based on where you live. So objectively, there is no right accent. This is what people say. Objectively, there is no right accent. And even people who say they have the right accent or the true accent, from another person's perspective, no, you don't, <laughs> right? You have an accent. So this is how the postmodern people saw truth and knowledge. They're just kind of like accents. It's all based on just where you are, where you live, and your experience. Now, the real world, again, is out there, but you can't really have access to truth about the real world, about knowledge on the real world. You don't have access to that. Everything is filtered through your own subjective experiences, biases, perspectives. And you guys, think about how many people today see the world like that. The moment you come to them with the Bible and say, hey, you know, the Bible says, oh, that's your truth. You know, I saw this very discouraging poll, but last year a poll was taken, but it said 55% of people 30 years and younger in our country, do not believe in absolute truth. Okay, why? Did we just suddenly wake up one day, boom, oh, I decided not to believe in absolute truth anymore. No, it's these streams, right? They're flowing down and it's beginning to rain down on everybody. And now this is the world we live in. Majority of young people don't believe in absolute truth. And so now, without access to objective truth, all you have is power. This is what the most postmodern people said. All you have is power. And that's the other important idea in postmodernism, power. Society is made up of systems of power, I'm quoting the book Cynical Theory, systems of power and hierarchies. So now when you look at society, yeah, people say things that are supposedly true, it's supposed to be real truth, but you, we, we, know, we, know the, we know what's really happening, right? It's just their truth. 
But what's really happening is these are all power plays, systems of power and hierarchies. And those in power are using words, right? They're using language to keep themselves in power. And they're using language to oppress everyone else. Okay, this is what they're saying. How? Okay, how's that happening? By constantly giving people their own version of the truth, right? The people in power, they're giving their own version of the truth, their own take on reality, their values, their beliefs, and they're saying it all the time. They're setting things up to promote these things, right? Because they're in power. And through that, it's oppressing people. So basically, oppression is, is coming through ideology. Okay, this should sound very familiar. This is what people literally believe today, everywhere. Now, this doesn't have to be something nefarious, right? Something evil. We're not talking about like, oh, they're, they're telling evil things to people. No, it could be something as innocent as men and women are different. And they should play in their own sports leagues. Seems like an obvious statement. Men and women are different. They should play in their own sports leagues. And then setting up actual sports leagues to do that. Here's a woman's sports league, here's a men's sports league. They, they play in separate leagues. So for the normal person, you're like, yeah, sure. But then the postmodern person looks at that and goes, no, that's a power play. Look at that. So see, we don't know truth. We don't have access to objective truth. We don't know if this is objectively true. But what we do know is everything is power, right? So you're using this language, you're using these words, men and women are different. Men who are the oppressors are using these words to control and keep women, the oppressed group, down. And then they're using their power to set up society in such a way to keep these things going, right? To keep women down. And so that's how postmodernists, they might not be saying it like in that way, <laughs> but, but they are saying these things. Now, we're getting way ahead of ourselves. I don't know if the original postmodernists in the mid-1900s made these kinds of arguments, but the postmodernists today, they definitely do. They definitely do, and you hear it everywhere. So that's the second stream, postmodernism. And then I'm just gonna wrap it up by briefly mentioning the third stream. Okay, the third stream is social justice. Social justice. And this is where now everything becomes real. It is on the ground and it just explodes everywhere. Now it's just everywhere, all over our culture. But social justice, this is the third stream. Now, social justice comes from socialism. You guys might have heard that, right? Socialism, you guys have heard that? Well, socialism is very interesting, but socialism is older than Marxism. It was around even like decades before Karl Marx was born. Or, or at least right when he was born, but it was around before Marxism. And socialism, this is very interesting, but it started with Christians. So Christianity had a role in all this. It started with Jesuit priests, um, a group of Christians, and basically, just kind of real quick, but as the West, right, Western society, as it became more liberal and democratic. When I say liberal, I'm not talking about liberal today, right? Like conservative and liberals, like one group likes guns, the other group doesn't like guns. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about liberal, meaning the foundations of Western society. Okay, liberal. Okay, meaning that there's something sacred about the individual. We have autonomy, meaning like we have this right to think what we want, say what we want, live our lives the way we want. We should have laws, not just for one group of people, but for everybody, right? Common law, group laws that protect these sacred rights for individuals, right? That's liberalism, right? Liberal. As democratic liberalism, liberal democracies began to rise up in the West, socialism was just kind of right there together. They grew together. And a lot of it was because of Christians looking at what was happening in the West saying, hey, this democracy and all this stuff, liberalism is great, but we're seeing people being left out. Yeah, it's great. You do what you want, say what you want, you know, free market, right? Buy, sell, you know, live your life. You have, you know, private property, all this is great. Basically the life we have now, right? It's great. But look at these people being overlooked. The haves and the have-nots. And so a lot of Christians began to point that out. And so socialism started. So socialism kind of grew together with liberal democracies. And then suddenly, Marx comes along and then takes socialism and makes it his thing. It becomes his like twisted version of it, right? So then, socialism keeps going, right? After Marx took it over, it kept going, it kept going. 
And then now, a hundred years later, and I'm just gonna have to wrap it up here, we don't have time actually. But a hundred years later, socialism and social justice is doing its own thing, is growing, and then around the 80s and 90s, suddenly these different streams all came together. We don't have time to go into all the, the differences, and, and frankly, it's just boring. I mean, if you, if you try to like figure out how they all came together, kind of, it's all these like, you know, people talking to so-and-so, and it's boring, but, but all these streams came together, and then boom! Now, all these people in critical theory and postmodernism, right, trying to right, free the oppressed and all this, now they had a very, very clear purpose. We know what to do. It's called social justice, right? We need to bring social justice. All this like injustice in society that we've been talking about all along, the oppressed and oppressor using language and you know, trying to keep people down and you know, people in power keeping their power. And we know what to do is social justice. And then it just all came together and then it just exploded. And the rest is history. And so now, fast forward to the 2000s, and then really in the 2010s, it is everywhere. And now you have people who say, I am a man in a woman's body, and you have absolutely no right to criticize me or to say anything against that. Why? Because you don't have access to objective truth. How do you know that's not true? It's my truth, and I'm an oppressed class of people. You have no right to come to me and say anything. I am oppressed. You are an oppressor. So I'm going to do what I want, and I'm going to go into the women's bathroom. And there's nothing you could do about it. And we're going to get a lot more into that next week, specific examples and ways and, and the way people are thinking today. But that's what has happened. This is how we got here. And so as we can see, ideas really matter. You know, I like what J.P. Moreland, he's a professor at the seminary I went to, but he said ideas matter. In fact, we are largely at the mercy of our ideas. And so we need to understand ideas, brothers and sisters. We can't just be about, well, I care about the gospel. Yes, we should. We should always, always be focused and centered on the gospel. But if that is all you know, and you don't know about the other ideas that other people are really trapped in, again, Moreland said we are largely at the mercy of our ideas, then how are you going to speak to them? How are you going to tell a person who says, this is my truth, I'm an oppressed class, you can't do anything, how are you going to share the Bible with them? How are you going to shell, uh, not shell, how are you going to tell them the truth that will set them free? Well, we need to begin to wrap our minds around these ideas. Amen? So let's just come before the Lord right now. And as we do every Sunday, we're going to just spend a brief moment reflecting.